I feel incredibly privileged to get to talk a little bit about church history this morning. Uh, This was something that for me was unexpected. Moody Publishers was gracious enough to allow me to publish a curriculum that deals with church history. It's in the same style and format as Fundamentals of the Faith. It follows that same kind of pattern. And I had no intention of doing it in our Sunday school class. And when I told Harry and Mark and Han about this, they asked me if I would do this as part of our Sunday school curriculum, and um, I was grateful for the opportunity. So the booklet looks like this. If you didn't get one of these, we do have extra copies in the back. You're welcome to grab one on your way out. And we're going to be going through this material over the next few weeks. The plan is to go through uh, about the first six lessons before Thanksgiving, and then we'll take a break. And then if everyone still fills up for it, we'll do some more in the spring, but we'll kind of play that by ear. Uh, What this is, Forerunners of the Faith, is a curriculum that walks through the history of the church. And this is a topic that is of particular interest to me. And I'm hoping to convince you this morning that it needs to be of particular interest to you, the history of the church. When I teach my church history class at the seminary, I always have students in the class who are afraid that it's going to be a really boring class. And that's because they had some bad experience in junior high or maybe in junior college with a history class and their history class was boring. But My contention is that we love the history of the things that we love. And so I don't want you to think of this as a curriculum that walks through church history. I want you to, in terms of the history part of it, I want you to think about it as a curriculum that's focused on the church itself. And I know that you love the church. And because you love the history of the things that you love, I'm convinced that you'll love church history as well. The format of this, just to, by way of introduction, the format of this is going to feel a little bit more like a Sunday's in July. It's a little bit more of a lecture than a sermon. I always love what Abner Chow does when he takes those two words and combines them and calls it a lerman. But this will be more lecture than sermon. And I'm hopeful that over the next six weeks, we'll lay the groundwork for really studying the framework of what God's been doing in his church over the last 2,000 years. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why this is such an important subject, and then we're going to get into uh, the first lesson this morning. On page six of this workbook, there's an introduction that talks through why the study of church history is valuable and why it's especially valuable for us as Protestant evangelicals. I think the reality is that most Protestant evangelicals, even Reformed evangelicals, have very little understanding of the history of the church. That was my own experience, even coming out of Bible college. My understanding of church history was fairly inept. I knew that... The Apostle Paul went on a number of missionary journeys, right? The book of Acts is a book of church history. I knew that the Apostle John, the last surviving apostle, died around the year 100. 
And then my understanding of the history of the church pretty much went dark. My understanding was that the church more or less fell into corruption at some time during the Middle Ages. There was some guy named Augustine or Augustine who lived at some point. Another guy named Thomas Aquinas who lived at a different time. And then Martin Luther rescued the church in 1517 at the Reformation. And that was kind of my understanding of church history. That may be your understanding of church history, and that's why I'm so excited to really go on a journey with you and fill in the gaps, because that's not an adequate understanding of the history of the church. And the reality is that kind of a lack of understanding leaves you vulnerable. I would say even more broadly, it leaves evangelicalism vulnerable to all sorts of attacks. Sadly, evangelicalism, I'm talking about the broader evangelical world, is largely disinterested in its own history. Most contemporary evangelical churches, they don't talk a lot about church history. They're more interested in having a youth group style rock concert and entertaining the people who are there. And uh, sadly, That lack of understanding about history leaves their congregants, again, very vulnerable to attack. And let me give you just an example of that. Uh, About a month ago, I was contacted by a lady in our church who had come across some things that I had done. She knew that I was interested in church history, and she reached out to me because she wanted me to meet with her brother who grew up in an evangelical church, not this church, But he had left evangelicalism and he had become Roman Catholic. And uh, I've met with him now a couple of times and we're having some really interesting conversations and discussions. But the story of his journey was very interesting to me and I wanted to share it with you just a little bit because I think it underscores the value of doing something like what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. He said that he grew up in uh, an evangelical context, a Calvary Chapel context, and he, in fact, at one point was the leader of his Bible club in high school, and then he went off to college. He went to a non-Christian college, a secular college, and when he was there, he encountered evolution. And he said that he encountered arguments for evolution that he had never heard before, And he felt as if his church had not prepared him adequately to be able to respond to those arguments. In fact, he said he felt as if his church had not been honest with him, that his church had lied to him. Now, what we're going to be talking about this morning and over the next few weeks doesn't have to do with evolution and with science. That's a different category. But this was a step in this young man's journey away from evangelical Christianity. And of course, I understand the theology behind all of this, that if someone walks away from the faith, it demonstrates the fact that they were never truly saved to begin with. But it was interesting for him to say that he felt like his church had not prepared him well. Shortly after that, he encountered some people, I don't know if it was on that college campus or where, who were Eastern Orthodox. And these Eastern Orthodox individuals introduced this young man to church history, but from a distinctly Eastern Orthodox perspective. 
And he said once again he felt like his church had lied to him because they had never told him anything about the history of the church. And so he gravitated from agnosticism to Eastern Orthodoxy. And then he discovered the writings of Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theologian that we'll talk about much later. And through the writings of Thomas Aquinas, he slowly gravitated into Roman Catholicism. And he said for a third time, he felt like his evangelical church had lied to him because the things that they had told him about Roman Catholicism, he said he didn't feel were accurate or fair. I share that not so much because of the evolutionary science part of it, but because of the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic part of that story because I don't want people at Grace Church to ever go out and encounter someone from either an Eastern Orthodox or a Roman Catholic perspective and hear about the history of the church and feel like they never heard about this from Grace Church. And so this curriculum in part, and that's just a recent example, but this curriculum in part is intended to fill in those gaps because God has been at work in the world over the last 2,000 years, and it is a great benefit to us to understand what it is he's been doing for the last two millennia. And what I think will encourage you is to discover that God has had his remnant of true believers in every generation of the history of the church. And not only that, but our convictions as evangelical Christians, those convictions can be traced not just back to the Reformation, but long before the Reformation, all the way back through the prior 15 centuries to the apostolic period in the New Testament itself. And what I have discovered is that this journey of this journey of discovery through church history is not something that undermines our faith as evangelical protestant christians it is something that affirms our faith so church history is not something we need to be scared of it's something we need to know about because knowing just a little bit of church history will equip you So that when you meet someone who's Eastern Orthodox, or more likely you meet someone who's Roman Catholic, you're able to engage with them about the church history, but in a way that is biblical and not in a way that leads to some sort of heretical or inaccurate view of theology. So that's why we're doing what we're doing in our class over the next few weeks. So, Forerunners of the Faith. On page six, you'll notice that there are a few blanks at the bottom, three reasons why the study of church history is important. I've actually listed 10 reasons on the next page, but we won't go through all of those. Three reasons, A, B, C. If I only have 30 seconds to tell somebody why church history is important, this is my little acronym. A is for apologetics. B is for biography, and C is for curiosity. Apologetics, biography, and curiosity. 
A study of church history equips you to defend the faith because you see how prior generations of believers have defended the faith. And it also answers questions like, where did false forms of Christianity arise? Oh, page eight. Thank you. Page eight. It's like a six, but with an extra circle on top. I was close. Page eight. B is for biography. One of the things I love about studying church history is you see the lives of faithful men and women throughout the last 2,000 years who have served the Lord, and it motivates our own passion for Christ. And then C is just for curiosity. There are a whole lot of questions that church history answers, and I think those are helpful things. Questions like, where do the different denominations come from? Why are there so many? Uh, Church history answers that question. Why do we do things the way we do them? Why don't we do some things the way we don't do them? Church history answers those questions as well. So I'm really excited to jump into this study with you. With that said, we're going to start lesson one here. And for today, it's going to be a little bit of a shorter lesson that's intentional In the subsequent weeks, uh, we'll probably just skip our break so that we can go right into it so that we have plenty of time in our sessions together. All right. Today, what I want to do is I want to establish the biblical framework. When we study church history, it's very important for us to begin with this motto, and that is that scripture is our authority, not church history. In fact, I probably say that several dozen times every semester that I teach a church history class, and that's because it's important for us always to remember that the Bible is our authority for what we believe and what we practice. Scripture is our authority, not church history, which means that we're going to evaluate the history through the lens of scripture And in this lesson, I want to establish that biblical framework. One of the New Testament metaphors for the church is that of a building. And I find this to be a very helpful metaphor, even as we think about church history. In fact, we can extend that metaphor out just a little bit. If we think about the foundation of a building, there's a number of different passages that come to mind. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. And then you have Ephesians 2.20, which again says that the church is built on the foundation, this time of the apostles and the prophets, meaning their witness to Christ, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the main bedrock stone of the foundation. So again, The foundation is Christ. And then if we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter also says that we are like little stones that are built up as part of God's temple, but the foundation is Christ. And then just one more passage, Matthew chapter 7, to make the point. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So all throughout the New Testament, the church is compared to a building, and that building is built on the rock, and the rock is Christ. 
fact, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We can talk about that verse later if you want, but Peter in the Greek is masculine. Upon this rock in the Greek is feminine. So Jesus can't be referring to Peter as the rock because Peter's not a girl. So the rock, feminine, has to refer to something else. It refers a couple verses earlier to Matthew 16, 16, Peter's confession. I say to you that you are Christ, the son of the living God. So the church is built on the rock. The rock is not Peter. The rock is Christ. And even in 1 Peter, we saw that Peter said, I'm not the rock. The rock is Christ, right? So the rock is Christ. And Christ is the foundation along with the biblical witness to him upon which the church is built. On top of this foundation, we have several doctrinal pillars And these doctrinal pillars provide for us the boundary markers of historic biblical orthodoxy. And this is going to be really important for us because these three pillars, we might call them the fundamentals of the faith, we might call them the core essential doctrines of Christianity, the first level primary doctrines that define true Christianity apart from any other movement, we're going to use these pillars to evaluate and assess all of the people and movements that occur in the subsequent 2,000 years of church history. So our building has three pillars. Those pillars would be, number one, the supremacy of the word of God. The true church recognizes that scripture is its final authority. Secondly, The sufficiency of the work of God, the true church recognizes that sinners are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And then thirdly, the sanctity of the worship of God, the true church has a right view of who God is and of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now these things sound very basic, Uh, that's because we understand that these represent the essential cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. To be a Christian is to submit in obedience to the word of Christ, right? John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They recognize and submit to the word of Christ. Secondly, they rely entirely on the work of Christ finished at the cross. And thirdly, they worship Christ in spirit and in truth. So let's talk a little bit more about these three doctrinal pillars, and that's where I want us to spend our time today, because I want to show you that these doctrinal pillars are found in Scripture as defining true believers and separating or distinguishing the true church from that which might falsely claim to be Christian or a movement of God. So let's start with the Word of God. The true church submits to the Word of God as the final authority. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 It's the passage that we're going to talk about tonight in the evening service, but this well known all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That verse 
tells us that the word of God is inspired, so the inspiration of scripture. And if it is inspired, it comes from God. God cannot lie. Therefore, scripture is inerrant. It is true. It is without error. And it comes with God's own authority. And that verse goes on to express that it is sufficient for all that is needed for life and godliness. Uh, This is an especially important topic when it comes to the study of church history, the authority of scripture what we would call sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our supreme authority. And it becomes a very important thing in church history because there are movements like Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, which are going to insist that tradition, including the decisions of councils and the utterances of popes and the teachings of the magisterium, that some sort of oral tradition is of equal... And in practice, greater authority to the authority of Scripture. So in the Roman Catholic view, the church is the authority, and the church determines how Scripture should be interpreted, how tradition should be interpreted, and tradition and Scripture are viewed as having equal authority, with tradition honestly being given a higher authority to the written Word of God. Well, where in the scripture could we go to show that scripture has the higher authority than tradition? In fact, one of the questions that I was asked by this young man that I've been meeting with is, well, where does the Bible say that the Bible is the authority? Uh, Which is a fair question. And I think the answer is that the Bible says that many times. Every time the Bible claims to be the word of God, it's claiming to be the authority because God is the authority and therefore his word is the authority. In fact, the word authority and the word author share the same root. God's the author, therefore his word has inherent authority. But is there a specific text that makes that clear? I believe the answer is yes. Mark chapter 7 Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. The Pharisees are upset because Jesus' disciples were plucking grain as they were walking through the fields and they were not washing their hands before they ate. This is pre-COVID. I know what you're all thinking. How could they not use hand sanitizer? But it had nothing to do with sanitation. It had everything to do with rabbinic ritual cleansing. So the Pharisees were upset, not because of hygiene. They were upset because... They felt like the rabbinic traditions had not been observed. And so they confronted Jesus about his disciples not observing religious tradition, not biblical teaching, but religious tradition. And look how Jesus responds. So let me read this. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. That's an amazing text because here you have the Jewish religious leaders arguing that tradition was of equal authority to scripture, and Jesus rebukes them because they had elevated tradition to a place of authority equal to 
the word of God. This is exactly what the medieval Roman Catholic Church did. It is what the modern Roman Catholic Church continues to do. And Jesus' indictment against that way of thinking still holds. Scripture is the authority over tradition, not the other way around. Now, someone might ask, well, what about places in the New Testament where it talks about apostolic tradition? What about places in the New Testament where it talks about some sort of apostolic tradition? And you can see there in your workbook a number of different places where the Apostle Paul talks about tradition. Is this some sort of indication that Roman Catholicism is right to hold to their body of oral tradition? Well, the answer to that is no. And let me give you just a few points on this. Number one, the word tradition, the Greek word means that which is given over, the Latin term, that which is handed down. It's just a general term for saying those things that one generation hands down to the next generation. And we tend to think of it in terms of customs or practices, but it really is broader than that. Anything that is handed down is considered tradition. So apostolic tradition then refers to any sort of apostolic instruction, either given by word of mouth, and of course the apostles preached and taught when they were here, or by letter, meaning that the tradition includes the writings of the apostles, but what it does not include, it does not include the elaborate practices or customs that developed in post-apostolic church history that comprise what Roman Catholics today would say is part of their tradition. Things like purgatory, things like the primacy of the papacy, things like the um, assumption of Mary, things like uh, confession to a priest. These are all things that developed much later, long after the time of the apostles, They clearly are not what Paul had in mind when he was talking about apostolic tradition. Secondly, apostolic tradition or instruction is preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. We have have the apostolic tradition. It is the written tradition recorded and preserved in the letters of the apostles, which are on the pages of Scripture. So we don't have to wonder about what apostolic tradition consisted of. It's there for you in the New Testament. And when something like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy says, well, we have a tradition, I can evaluate that tradition through the lens of what I know is truly apostolic, which is what I'm doing when I take the New Testament and apply it to whatever might claim to be some sort of historic tradition of the church. Number three, believers are called to evaluate teachings and traditions in light of God's word. And we see this in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.21, where Paul says, examine all things carefully. And, uh, and then in Colossians 2.8, he says, beware that you not be held captive or taken captive through the traditions of men. So we're warned about false traditions. And what are we doing? How are we to examine those things? Well, I think Acts 17, 11 gives us a great example. This is the Bereans. In fact, Paul went to Berea right after he was at Thessalonica. 
And it was there in Berea that the Bereans, Acts 17, 11, Luke says, are more noble because they evaluated even the teachings of the apostle Paul by comparing Paul's teachings to what the Old Testament scriptures revealed. Of course, Paul's teachings were perfectly in line with Old Testament scripture, but the principle still stands that the Bereans were noble because they evaluated any teaching by taking it back to the text. And then number four in our list here, it's important to understand that the early church viewed the writings of the apostles as authoritative. They recognized non-biblical tradition must be evaluated against what the apostles had revealed in the New Testament. And I have a quote from Irenaeus. I won't read it because it's there in your workbook but it's fascinating for him to talk about how the pillar and ground of the faith is the scriptures that came from the teaching of the apostles. And then a little bit later, a fourth century church father, Basil. I do want to just draw your attention to this. Uh, Basil was living at a time when there was a false teaching known as Arianism that was very prevalent. Arianism was like a fourth century version of the Jehovah's Witness watchtower theology. They denied the deity of Christ. And Basil in this essentially says, look, we have our tradition and you, you uh, Arians, you have your traditions. So who's to say who's right and who's wrong, right? If you have tradition and I have tradition, Who's to say whose tradition is correct? Well, Basil goes on to answer that question, and you can see he even underlined it for us. Um, He says, therefore, let God-inspired scripture decide between us, and on whichever side be found doctrine in harmony with the word of God in favor of that side will be cast the vote of truth. So here we have a fourth century church father saying, look, If you have tradition and I have tradition and we're arguing about whose tradition is correct, how do we decide? We appeal to a higher court of authority than tradition. That higher court of authority is the word of God. So the true church then is characterized by a submission to the supremacy of the word of God as the highest authority. Secondly, the true church is characterized by a commitment to the sufficiency of the work of God in salvation. And I I will go through this quickly, but, and I know you know this because you're at a church where you're well taught, but it's important for us to reiterate the fact that the true church rests solely in the gracious work of God in salvation. Sinners are justified not on the basis of their own merit, not on the basis of their own good works, not on the basis of their own effort. We are justified by grace alone, meaning it's a gift, through faith alone, which is also a gift, Ephesians 2.8, in the finished work of Christ alone, the person and work of Christ, he accomplished it all. On the cross, he paid the penalty, and through his resurrection, demonstrated that he was an acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of God. And so we are forgiven and we are justified entirely because of what he accomplished once for all at the cross. Well, this is something that 
Scripture reiterates over and over again. In Luke 18, you have a tax collector who's justified not because of his own holiness, but because he cries out for mercy to God. In Galatians 1, Paul is beside himself that the Galatians would have abandoned the pure and true gospel for a gospel of works righteousness. And so he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a different gospel than the gospel of grace, that person would be accursed. In Acts 13, we have Paul on his first missionary journey in a sermon in a Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. He articulates the fact that you cannot be justified through the law of Moses but you can be justified and forgiven through faith in Christ. And then just a few more texts just to make the point. Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from works. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 11.6 is one of my favorites especially in talking to Roman Catholics, because in the context of salvation, Paul says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You mix in works as being necessary for salvation. Grace is frustrated and destroyed. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a a verse I'm sure you all know well. Again, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Paul says that he was justified uh, not from a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And just in case you weren't convinced yet, Titus 3, 5 to 7, again, we have the fact that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Over and over and over again, the true gospel of grace is reiterated, defined, and defended on the pages of Scripture. And when we think about the history of the church, what we're going to be looking for is we're going to be looking for those people and those movements who understood that the Bible is their highest authority, not the Pope, not a council, not tradition, the Bible, and the gospel is a gospel of grace through faith apart from works, apart from my own effort. There's a third mark of the true church, and that is that they are committed to the sanctity of the worship of God. They worship him in spirit and in truth. And if that sounds familiar, it's from John chapter 4. It's in John 4 that Jesus tells the woman at the well that an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Spirit there refers to a purity of devotion and truth, a purity of doctrine. That the true church worships God in the right way, in spirit, and they worship God for who he truly is truth. So purity of devotion and purity of doctrine. Undefiled worship is reserved for God alone. True worship removes distractions and rejects competitors. 
Exodus 20, verse 4, of course, is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 42, 8, a similar passage. There's a couple interesting texts that I just want to draw your attention to quickly. 2 Kings 18.4 is one of those. You'll remember from the book of Numbers that there was that account in the wilderness where serpents went out and attacked the people and people were dying from the venom of the serpents. And so Moses actually made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole and anyone who looked to the bronze serpent was saved, was healed. They were spared from the uh, disease. Well, that bronze serpent actually got kept And it was stored in the temple. And for the next number of centuries, uh, the Jewish people, when they would come to either the tabernacle or the temple, they began to venerate this object. And, And it's an interesting case study because it's not an idol. It's something that God told Moses to create, uh, to make. And, and it, it was used at an important point in Israel's history. And yet, it's very interesting, when Hezekiah is instructed to reform Jewish uh, Judaism, when he's instructed to cleanse the temple and reform Israel's worship, he destroys that bronze serpent. It says he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until, until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. The reason I think that's really interesting is because in Eastern Orthodoxy, even today, incense is a huge part of their religious practice. And they burn incense to all sorts of saints and figures and icons, generally icons in Eastern Orthodoxy. And yet here we have an Old Testament example of how even something that God ordained at one point in history, if it becomes an object of veneration, it's competing with true worship and Hezekiah was to destroy it. I find that a very interesting parallel to Eastern Orthodoxy and some aspects of Roman Catholic practice today. We know in the New Testament that we are to avoid idols Another really interesting passage is Revelation 22, 8 and 9. And that's because here in Revelation 22, John bows down before an angel. And uh, the word that's used there in Greek is the word proskuneo, which I know doesn't mean anything to you. But there's another word for worship in Greek, latruo. And in Roman Catholicism, they tend to argue that worship and veneration are two different things. So you can venerate as much as you want, and it doesn't constitute false worship. The problem with that is, and they they base that on the difference between latruo, which means worship, and proskuneo, which means venerate. But here's an example where John bows down before an angel, and the Greek word there is proskuneo, or venerate. And what does the angel say to John? Don't do that. Venerate God alone. So here we have another interesting case study that demonstrates that the true church is characterized by true worship, which means it rejects all competitors and all confusion or distractions from from worshiping the true God. Secondly, purity of doctrine. Undefiled worship requires an accurate view of who God is. 
If you get God wrong, you're worshiping the wrong God. You're worshiping a false form of who God is. That's a false form of worship. I just want to demonstrate this quickly by showing you how the New Testament responds to those who would get a view of Christ wrong. So 1 John talks about repeatedly that if you deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you're not just incorrect, you're of the spirit of Antichrist. And we can talk maybe a different time when we have more time about all of the nuances of that. But to deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, which was popular because of some forms of Greek philosophy that were prevalent in the first century, to deny that Jesus Christ came in a real human body is to deny the incarnation. It's to deny, to deny that he lived a real human life. It's to deny that he actually died as a substitute for sin. And the apostle John's saying, hey, if you get Jesus wrong, you are outside of biblical orthodoxy. You can see here in 1 John 4 that those who deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh are of the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 5.20, the truth about who, God, uh, who Jesus Christ is, he is the true God and eternal life. 2 John 7, John goes so far as to say, somebody who denies the truth about Jesus Christ, don't even let them into your house. Don't even give them a drink. Don't do anything that would affirm their ministry as being a genuine representation of the gospel. And even in John's gospel, we see really three important truths about who Jesus is. Jesus is God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is man, John 1.14. The word became flesh. And Jesus is the Messiah. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Christ being the Greek word that means Messiah. And so that's just one glimpse into this idea that we must worship God in spirit and in truth if Jesus is God, it means that we embrace the Trinity, which is a corollary doctrine. Because Jesus became man, we embrace doctrines like the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And because Jesus is the Messiah, we embrace the exclusivity of the gospel. So what are our doctrinal pillars? How are we going to identify true believers and the true church through the entirety of church history, well, we're going to do so by looking at those who were committed to the word of God, those who were committed to the work of God in salvation, and those who were committed to the true worship of God in spirit and in truth. And I, I included 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14 here because it's just a great reminder that Timothy was to guard these things and true Christians are those who guard these things, and we're called to guard these same truths in our own generation. So if we come back to our building, we have our foundation, we have our three pillars, and then we can subdivide church history into four floors of 500 years each. And we'll talk more about that in subsequent lessons. But the first 500 years, the age of the church fathers, the patristic age. The next 1,000 years is the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, and then the high and, middle, high and late Middle Ages. And then the last 500 years, the early and late modern age. And I would just end by pointing you to the 
sort of expanded version of this. I believe it's on page 19. Looks like that. Because really this is going to be the roadmap that we're going to use in these lessons. When when we think about history, it's easy to think about history in terms of a long, continuous timeline. That's not as helpful for me when it comes to remembering the specific events, dates, people, places, etc. I prefer to think of it, again, as a building. So I'm extending the metaphor. But a building that's built on Christ, that's defined by these doctrinal pillars. And then as we slowly move from epic to epic... We're going to meet the people who are in these individual rooms on each of these floors. Each of these rooms represents a century. And for my mind, this is sort of like a mall map for church history. When I go to the outlets or when I go to the mall, I find myself very uncomfortable in those places for many reasons, but I immediately look for the directory. And when I get to the directory, I immediately look for something that says, you are here. Because I have no idea where I am, but the directory is going to help me. And then I look for food court. But in any case, this is sort of our mall map through church history. So as we go through, we're going to kind of be tracking. And we're going to go from room to room. And we're going to meet the people who held to these convictions, which is super encouraging because these are our convictions. And... I think you're going to be blessed knowing, and this is why singing hymns is such a joy as well, knowing that there are generations of people in centuries past who believed about the Bible what you believe about the Bible, who believed about salvation what you believe about salvation, who believed about God, the triune God, what you believe about the triune God, and what's super cool is one day we're going to join all of them around the throne of Christ and we're actually going to get to spend eternity with these people as we worship our Lord together. That's what gets me excited about studying church history. It's not about dates and dead people. It's about the convictions that span two millennia that characterize who we are They were faithful. We are called to be faithful as we pass those doctrines on to those who come after us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to go through this introductory lesson. Lord, we do want to be those who are committed to the supremacy of your word as we submit to it in our own hearts, who are committed to the sufficiency of your work in salvation, resting entirely in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, and who worship you, Lord, in purity and sanctity, purity of doctrine and purity of devotion, that we would worship you for who you truly are and that we would worship you in a way that you accept. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of the church. Amen.